start today's episode with I'm not sure if I if it caught what I said there at the beginning. Let me start over. I suppose I should start today's episode with something of a trigger warning. You see, in past episodes of The Apologetics, I've challenged a lot of theological views, a lot of beliefs, a lot of doctrines. Um, and, you know, that's hard enough for some people to hear if they disagree with my conclusions. But in today's episode, I think I'm going to be doing something a little unprecedented for this show, and that is challenging not just a theological belief, not just a doctrine, but a practice. And more than that, this is not any sort of mere practice. This is a practice that for many Christians is um, deeply uh, emotional, deeply intimate, uh, for them deeply spiritual, and it is often at the core of their very spiritual identity. So if you're somebody that practices the practice that I'll be discussing today, you probably will not like what I have to say, um, which doesn't mean I'm right and it doesn't mean you're wrong, um, but it does mean that you will be tempted to tune out uh, and to turn off the stream or, or, the, uh, or, or the recording if you're watching this after I streamed it. Um, and I understand that, but I would plead with you to please don't just turn off and tune out, because although you won't like the conclusions I come to, I do think that I'll deliver them in respect um, and with love. Um, but, uh, as again, again, I will be challenging something that may be very near and dear to your heart. So please stick around as we discuss the topic of tongues in this episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date, and by way of reminder, The Apologetics is part of the Trinity Commission. The Trinity Commission is a network of YouTube channels and podcasts and ministries that are led by professors at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct professor. Um, if you're looking for a higher Christian education in theology or philosophy or apologetics and um, don't have the time or the money to be able to uh, to, to spend it on a traditional brick-and-mortar uh, institution, um, then Trinity may be for you. We are a diverse faculty and diverse student body. We, um, we hold to the essentials of the Christian faith, and we are conservative evangelicals, but we also believe that the church has a wide variety of views, and we think that all of those views are deserving of respect and um, you know fair treatment to the, the people that hold those views. So consider, if you're looking for a formal higher education in theology, biblical studies, apologetics, those kinds of things, consider going to trinitysem.edu. Sem is short for seminary. trinitysem.edu to learn more. 
Um, but if you aren't looking for a formal higher education, the Trinity Commission of Ministries, podcasts, YouTube shows um, may afford you some uh, an informal theological education that you will find valuable, uh, presented by faculty that you are probably familiar with. Uh, not just me, least of all, Chris Date, but also Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett of Trinity Radio, uh, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101, Tim Stratton uh, of, of Free Thinking Ministries, Chris Featherstone of a ministry whose name I forgot and I apologize, uh, 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 <laughs> Steve Gregg of The Narrow Path. I, I apologize for my poor memory, um, but part of the problem with me not being able to remember the various ministries that are a part of this network is that we don't yet have much of a presence as a network. There's a Facebook page you can find if you search for the Trinity Commission, um, but it is out of date and it needs a lot of work, and that's something that I'm going to work on but my vision, um, having now become a part of the Trinity Commission and uh, being given permission to try to develop it even further, my vision for it is uh, for the network to just grow. And as more and more faculty at Trinity um, and possibly even students um, start these sh these channels, uh, I, I want them all to be easily accessible from one place because I think that they will all be beneficial to you, especially because, as I said, they represent a diversity of views. I mean, just take just take Tim Stratton, um, uh, uh, Leighton Flowers, me, and Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett, right? Uh, I'm a five-point Calvinist. Um, uh, Leighton Flowers is a provisionist. I think that Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter would probably identify as some kind of Arminian, and Tim Stratton is a Molinist. So we're sort of all across the board. So if you're looking for a uh, an education informally from uh, a diverse group of you know faculty at a Christian seminary, the Trinity Commission is, is a good place to start. So as I develop the the Facebook presence for the commission, I will um, say more about that and. and and hopefully you'll find that beneficial. Um, so I guess, oh, one brief announcement. Uh, next episode of The Apologetics, two weeks from today, uh, the plan is, Lord willing, I will be joined by my interview guest, Jay Warner Wallace, the um, the uh, cold case homicide detective who uh, at one time was known for the Please Convince Me website and then Cold Case Christianity. Well, he has recently published a new book called Person of Interest, and I'll be uh, interviewing him on the show to discuss uh, to discuss his books and uh, his book and, um, and and related topics. So if you're as much of a fan of Jay Warner Wallace as I am, um, I think you'll want to tune in. I think it'll be a good show. All right, so. Um, I'm about to dive into the content I've pre prepared on the topic of tongues. Um, one thing I want to make clear as I start to dive into this, though, is for many people that are watching this either live or after the recording, a lot of the preliminary material will be um, uh, old news to you. You won't, you'll already be familiar with many of the terms that I'm using, many of the concepts, um, but. I'm really trying to make my channel something that is accessible to less uh, less self-educated or less formally educated Christians who may not know some of the words and concepts and terms that that that, uh, that we use in the show. And so, um, as I typically do in, or at least often do in these PowerPoint presentations, like the one I've um, got prepared. Hey, Phil Fox, thanks for tuning in. And also, Susan, as per usual, thank you for tuning in. Taylor, Brian, and Winston, and, and James, all of you, thank, for, thank you for tuning in. But um, 
as I usually do, or at the very least often do with my PowerPoint presentations on this channel, I'm going to be starting with, I'm going to ease my way into the topic and explain some terms and concepts along the way so that this is the kind of informal education that we try uh, to make the Trinity Commission be. Um, so uh, if, if you are somebody that sometimes feels a little overwhelmed by the terminology and the concepts and things like that, um, don't worry. I'm going to try and uh, help you to develop your vocabulary and your understanding of these things um, and not just dive right into uh, the topic today. All right. So with that out of the way, I know that was eight minutes of rambling. I apologize, but uh, we'll dive into the content now. So, you know, in past episodes, I've, I've introduced topics that are within eschatology, the study of the so-called end things or last things or end times. And, and I've talked about anthropology, the study of human nature and human constitution. Well, the topic of tongues, the topic that we're going to be discussing today, it falls under the top, the, the area within systematic theology known as pneumatology. Pneumatology comes from the Greek word pneuma. Um, yes, in Greek, you are supposed to pronounce the opening P, pneuma. Um, we, we English speakers, uh, we, we don't pronounce the P, but when you pronounce the Greek, you are supposed to. And the word pneuma, um, most typically in, in most people's thinking, means spirit, but it can also mean uh, breath, wind, something, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but Pneumatology, as a word deriving from, and, and, and of course the ology part of pneumatology comes from logos, the, the, and in this case it's the study of. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. The way that Grenz, Gretzky, and Nordling put it in the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms is that pneumatology is the division of Christian doctrine dealing with the Holy Spirit. And among other things, this includes the person and work of the Holy Spirit, especially the Spirit's in involvement in human salvation. So we're going to be talking about pneumatology today, and specifically we're going to be talking about, uh, or a little more specifically than pneumatology, we'll be talking about the spiritual gifts. When we Christians talk about the spiritual gifts, we're often referring to um, what Thomas and Elwell describe here in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, gifts of God enabling the Christian to perform his or her sometimes specialized service. And these gifts include things like the discernment of spirits, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, tongues. Um, if, if you you might recognize from that list of uh, items that I've separated by ellipses, you might recognize that as sort of representative of two or three passages in the New Testament where these kinds of gifts are enumerated. So, for example, in Romans 12, 6 to 8, Paul talks about gifts that uh, differ according to the grace God has given us, including such things as prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity. And then there's 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where Paul says there are varieties of gifts to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And these gifts include the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, the gift of faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So this whole area of spiritual gifts is um, a subset of the topic of pneumatology. Now, very often when we talk about the spiritual gifts in, in, in the context of a video like this one that's going to challenge a particular perspective, typically the debate is between uh, cessationism and continuationism. Um, if those words aren't familiar to you, that's I'm going to explain them to you. Cessationism 
um, is defined by Alan Cairns as the belief that the charisma, the, the charismata, or charismata, depending on how you want to pr pronounce it, uh, which are the supernatural gifts of the apostolic church, these ceased with, or very soon after, the days of the apostles. So this uh, word charismata comes from the Greek charism. Um, char charism is uh, uh, singular. Char uh, charismata is plural, and it means gifts. This is the word that we, uh, this is the Greek word from which we get the English word charismatic. You know, a gifted kind of um, speaker. And the reason that this view is called cessationism is because it comes from the word cease. Right? The word cease means to stop. Cessation is the stopping of something. And cessationism is the belief that these charismata or these, these supernatural gifts ceased. So typically when a video like this one is going to challenge a particular view within pneumatology, it's challenging cessationism or it's challenging continuationism. And I'll mention continuationism in a moment. But that's not the topic of this episode today. Indeed, I am not... A cessationist at least not theologically now what do I mean by that what I mean is I can see no uh, plausible biblical case that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit ceased in or shortly after the apostolic era I'm open to it but I don't think the biblical or theological case for it is very compelling and so I am NOT a cessationist although as I said uh, you know, I said theologically I'm not a cessationist, but you might rightly accuse me of being a functional cessationist because I am always extremely skeptical of any claim that one of those gifts has been exercised, and I've yet to hear of a, of a you know of an of a, of a claimed exercising of a gift um, in you know the past centuries that I believe is real or was real i'm not defending that skepticism i'm just saying that's where i come from so functionally i probably am very in line with cessationism but theologically i'm not because i just can't see any good biblical or theological case for it and so as it stands i'm still open to the possibility of witnessing uh, uh you know the exercise of the gift of healing or of tongues or of some of the other ones so i'm not a cessationist but again, cessationism isn't what we're discussing today anyway. Uh, I am a continuationist, at least theologically. Uh, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy in their book Across the Spectrum, um, they, they explain continuationism this way. Um, were these gifts intended by God to be used throughout the entire church age until the Lord returns? Continuationists answer yes. The charismatic gifts were intended to continue through history. So this is my view, theologically at least. But again, the topic of today is not the debate between um, continuationism and cessationism. All right. What we're going to be discussing is instead the, the, the nature specifically of the gift of tongues. So let me start talking about that a little bit. The word tongues translates the Greek word glossa. Um, the word glossa literally means tongue, but it often means language or dialect, and it's the word from which we get glossary. All right, so you can see. Also, if you're if you're somebody who is a little bit familiar with uh, language translation, you might be familiar with the word gloss, not in the sense of like, you know, a, a shiny 
a surface, but in the sense of like a go-to rough and ready translation of a, of a, of a, of a source language. Right, so you can see the relationship between glossa or tongue and glossary. But again, so we're going to be talking about tongues, these these glossa. Um, and typically, Christians um, differentiate between two understandings of the gift of tongues, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. One of those is that uh, is that sometimes the exercise of the gift of tongues or the gift of glossa um, is the ability to speak known human languages. Not known by the speaker, necessarily, but known by the hearer. Known by some people on earth. All right? Um, so Wayne Grudem, for example, says that the gift of tongues is sometimes known languages and sometimes not. We'll get to that in a moment. At times, he says, speaking in tongues may involve speech in actual human languages. By the way, uh, if you're not familiar with systematic theology and you would like to um, learn a little bit more about systematic theology, I'd highly recommend Wayne Grudem's book. It's certainly not, uh, the, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is not by any stretch of the imagination like the top tier systematic theology that, you're, that you'll be able to find, but it was the one that I cut my teeth on as a young theologian about 20 years ago, and it's one that I think is fantastic, and, and I would encourage you to check it out. But anyway, so Grudem is a um, is somebody who is a continuationist, and he is here saying that uh, sometimes the gift of tongues is actual human languages. And uh, the best technical word for this exercise of the gift of actual human languages might be xenoglossia or xenolalia. Um, this comes from the Greek word xenos, meaning or xenos, meaning stranger. It's where we get the word xenophobia from. So xenoglossia or xenolalia, if you hear that word, it's referring to um, the, the, uh, exercise, the alleged exercise of the gift of being able to speak a human language, typically one that uh, it's believed to be one that the speaker has no you know, experience with. It's not their natural language. It's not one that they've learned. It's just a supernatural ability to speak it. Um, but... Uh, well, and, and the reason why most Christians, even who believe in the kind of tongues that we're going to be critiquing today, the reason why they acknowledge that the, this xenoglossia is um, one example of how the gift of tongues manifests is because that's self-evidently what happens in Acts 2. Um, verses 4 to 6 says that the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jews, devout men from every nation, were hearing the disciples speak in their own language. And this was thought to be a miraculous thing, a, 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 an amazing thing, and, and something that actually was quite unexpected, so much so that some of the audience thought that the, some of the hearers thought that the disciples were drunk. Um, but, the, the, but the thing here, the key here is that a very small, I think, minority of Christians think that the disciples here were speaking in the kind of tongues we'll be critiquing today, and I'll get to that in a moment, um, but that the hearers were not hearing the disciples speaking what it is that they were actually saying, but rather they were hearing um, a supernatural translation of the tongues that the disciples were speaking in their own language. So in this view, the disciples are speaking in 
a certain kind of tongue we'll be discussing and critiquing momentarily. But then there was also a hearing gift, a gift on the part of the hearers, the gift of being able to hear the tongues that were being spoken, but in their own language. This just does not hold up. Um, I'm not aware of any legitimate scholarship that, that, that holds to that understanding of Acts 2. And moreover, the text just says that the disciples spoke in other tongues. So it's, it's ludicrous to think that when it goes on to say that the hearers heard them speak in their own language, it's still yet another kind of tongue. That doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So the vast majority of Christendom, it seems to me, acknowledges that what we see in Acts chapter 2 is xenoglossia or xenolalia, the, 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 the ability to speak or the speaking of human languages. But... Grudem goes on to say that there's this other believed, other alleged expression of the gift of tongues. He says at other times, and this is key, Grudem says Paul assumes that this will ordinarily be the case. Right? In other words, that xenoglossia thing that we see in Acts 2 is believed by Grudem and many other um, people who share his perspective. Um, they, they believe that that xenoglossia expression of tongues is the minority report when it comes to what the expression of the gift of tongues looks like. The majority of the time, according to Grudem and many others, tongues is speech uh, in a language that no one understands. And he means that absolutely, not even the speaker. Uh, Duffield and Van Cleef put it this way, some tongues are human languages, that's xenoglossia or xenolalia, as on the day of Pentecost, but some tongues are of heavenly origin, of angels, used for praise and prayer where the mind is superseded, that is, the mind is not um, grasping what it is that the speaker is saying. And unlike xenoglossia, this understanding of the gift of tongues is called glossolalia or glossolalia. Um, you can tell there it comes from that word glossa, meaning tongue. And um, this is the distinction I want you to understand is that whereas Acts 2 is, an, is a record of xenoglossia, glossolalia or xenolalia, glossolalia or glossolalia, depending on how you pronounce it, is, um, uh, is, is, speaking tongues that no human understands, not even the speaker, except in rare cases that uh, where the speaker is able to interpret his own tongue. Um, but that's an exception to the rule, and very often there's nobody available to translate or interpret glossolalia according to this view. This view of glossolalia of, of a heavenly prayer language that no human naturally comprehends, including the speaker, is what we're going to be critiquing today. Now, I want to say a little bit more, though. Um, I want to be clear. I'm not here criticizing Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement, and I'm going to explain those here in a moment. I'm not critiquing those movements. This, uh, you know, In future episodes, perhaps, I will challenge other distinctives of Pentecostalism and charismaticism. Um, but that's not what the point here is today. But I do want those viewers who are brand new to this Christian theology stuff to kind of get a bit of a taste of the terrain. So let me introduce Pentecostalism to you, the concept of Pentecostalism, you know, Pentecostal churches, Pentecostal denominations. These, uh, according to Alan Cairns, are churches that stress a post-conversion experience. In other words, there's conversion where you become a Holy Spirit indwelt saved believer. But then at some point after that, 
there's what Pentecostals believe is the baptism in the Spirit. And this is a, an additional thing that happens at some point after conversion. Maybe in a, some cases it happens simultaneous with conversion, but generally it's something that happens after conversion in Pentecostalism. And the evidence of being baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit in the way that they believe is the, uh, is the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially glossolalia, speaking in tongues. So if you know somebody who talks about, hey, have you been baptized in the Spirit since you became a believer? And, and they say, have you spoken in tongues? You know, are you filled with the Spirit? They're very likely a Pentecostal. But not all people who believe in continuationism and glossolalia are Pentecostals. More broadly uh, than Pentecostalism, sort of the superset that contains Pentecostalism um, is, well, I'll get to that in a second. Penteco I'm getting ahead of myself. Pentecostal comes from the word pente, uh, Pentecoste, which is where we get Pentecost from. So it's that event, that uh, holiday uh, where the disciples and the Jews were gathered in Acts chapter 2. But the superset that contains Pentecostalism... <laughs> I just got ahead of myself again. I should stop speaking until I advance my slide so I remember where I'm at. Um, if you don't know, uh, if you want to know what to look for, if you're wanting to be on the lookout for Pentecostal churches, either because you would like to attend one and learn more about them or because you want to stay clear of them, um, the Assemblies of God are a Pentecostal denomination, the Vineyard Churches, the Foursquare Churches, also Hillsong Church and Bethel Church, if I'm not mistaken, are both historically Pentecostal churches as well. But again, not everybody who's a continuationist and a believer in glossolalia is a Pentecostal. The superset, the larger superset that contains Pentecostalism is the Charismatic Movement. Alan Cairns says that another word for the charismatic movement is neo-Pentecostalism, new Pentecostalism. And this is a movement where, the, uh, where views that are often distinctive of Pentecostalism become embraced by and practiced outside of Pentecostalism. Um, it's the adoption of Pentecostalist views and practices by ministers and members of non-Pentecostalist Pentecostalist denominations. So you might think of a taxonomy of Christian denominations or movements or whatever. Um, on the larger circle here on the screen is Christianity. And then a subset of Christianity is the charismatic movement. And by the way, it's not just Protestants. There are also Roman Catholics who would identify as charismatic as well. And then, an, and then a further subset of the charismatic movement is Pentecostalism. Now, this may be, what I'm about to show you is a, maybe a little simplistic and maybe slightly, um, there may be some blurriness to the accuracy of this, but what I would, it seems to me that this subset of Christianity known as the charismatic movement, a subset of which is Pentecostalism, this is the group of Christians who would both be continuationist and believers in glossolalia. And I want to make something really clear before I start my critique. I love my charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ. And moreover, I really truly commend and admire their desire for a spirit-filled experiential faith, a faith that is not merely up here, 
but also outworks, you know, works out in one's life and is experienced and isn't just nearly intellectually assented to. I have a great deal of respect for that. There are um, many individual Christians and many churches that are extremely dry in terms of experience. And um, I don't think that as Christians, we're called to have our faith only appear. We're called to experience our faith as well. And so I have a great deal of respect for um, Charismatics and Pentecostals because of that desire that they so earnestly pursue. However, I do think that there are concerning tendencies and even really bad extremes in the Charismatic movement and especially in Pentecostalism. And I think that they are damagingly wrong about the nature of tongues. I'll explain what I mean by that shortly. So before I continue, I, I want you to hear my heart. If you're, uh, if you're a charismatic or a Pentecostal, and especially if you're somebody who practices what you believe to be speaking in tongues, um, I think your practice of that is damaging. I'll explain why in a minute. But... I don't think it makes you a heretic. I don't think it makes you deserving of my um, my disrespect. I don't think it's oh something worthy of division. Uh, and I have a great deal of love and respect for you. So please understand and take take what I'm about to say in the spirit in which it's intended. It is not a, a spirit of division, of hate, of um, condemnation. It's it's a critique. A serious critique, but just a critique. All right? And I hope, I hope you hear my heart there. So, if you're somebody that has not heard uh, what is alleged to be the exercising of this gift, let me play you some videos. And what I want to begin with is a friend of mine. In fact, not just a friend of mine, but a somebody who uh, has involved has been involved with the other ministry that I'm most known for, uh, Rethinking Hell. His name is John Tancock. He goes by the nickname JT. And what you'll what you're going to see here is a and I don't know if he's Pentecostal, but he is charismatic. And here you're going to see him exercise what he believes to be the gift of tongues on a televised broadcast. Here we go. Now, if you're somebody that is fairly familiar with the tongues debate and you have strong feelings about, and understandably so, the importance of a tongues being interpreted, you, sh you need to know that I'm not playing it here, but the very next thing that John does in this recording is allegedly translates or interprets the tongues that he just spoke. So don't 
condemn John for failing to interpret tongues. He does interpret tongues, at least he what he does what he thinks is interpreting what he thinks is the, his expression of tongues. But that's an example, one example of somebody I definitely respect and count a friend and a dear brother in the Lord who is doing what he thinks is glossolalia. Here's another one. This is Derek Prince, who is a, um, or was something of a leader in the Pentecostal movement, if I'm not mistaken. Um, here's another uh, expression you'll get to hear of tongues, uh, of, of what is believed or what is alleged to be glossolalia. That's right. That's right. When your lips and your tongue are moving, give him your voice. That's right. You don't have to be ashamed that the Holy Spirit has come in. He's an honored guest. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. All right, so there's another example. And here's one more from somebody that I would count as orthodox, uh, meaning genuinely Christian. Um, albeit from what I think is, I think he would probably self-identify with the um, Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, Messianic Jews are Jews who... Um, embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but in um, what they understand to be, uh, you know, their, within their Jewish identity and, and Jewish customs. And this is a, a musician named Paul Wilbur. Paul Wilbur is a fantastic musician. I love, I, I have spent hours listening, hours and hours and hours listening to an album you can find on Amazon right now by Paul Wilbur called Jerusalem Arise. And it's messianic worship of Yeshua, the Mashiach, Jesus Christ. And it is absolutely beautiful. I, I, I know of no Christian music that is more beautiful than messianic music. So I'd encourage you to check it out. But here's Paul Wilbur speaking in glossolalia, doing doing what he believes is glossolalia. If you got a prayer language, go ahead and just stir up the the atmosphere a little. Just come on and pray and pray in the spirit. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Dear wife, Okay, so if you're like me, you think that those three examples of what they're speakers uh, believe to have been glossolalia, they, they all sound relatively similar. I would not be able to identify anti any noteworthy difference between what these three different believers in glossolalia and practicers of glossolalia are doing. And I've just shown you three examples of what I believe to be genuine saved believers. But I also think that what they do is indistinguishable in any meaningful way from what hucksters do. So here, for example, is Paula White. Listen to what this huckster does with tongues. Hello. 
Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. For the Lord demands a worship right now. The Lord demands a worship right now. For your worship will rise above it. Your worship will rise above it. For your worship will rise above it. For your worship will rise above it. Your worship will rise above it. Mahanda Akasa Kikaba Sandra Bakasakata. In Jesus' name, Brad Kepahata Rondere Eke Sekitaba. In Jesus' name. Come on, get up and start praying, start walking, start praying, start walking, start praying. Lord, haha, Mahanda Akasata, Rite de Rakatara, in the name of Jesus, hehe, Makatara Bakata. All right. And if you're not familiar with Paula White, you'll probably be familiar with this guy, Kenneth Copeland. I would argue even more of a huckster and an outright heretic than uh, than even Paula White. Here's an example of Kenneth Copeland alleg allegedly exercising glossolalia. Shigama. Tevrema humbo brevej dilishtu sinmahan tetike. Enge undu et genyandos dog sisikupukukla namen bremenesto. Stelogla Hamalana Lelo Lendilek Engren in Stelestkaratak. Sorry, I didn't transition that soon enough because I was typing uh, hi to my friend Dan. Thanks for tuning in, Dan. I appreciate it. So, uh, there you may be able to identify some minor differences between what Paula White and Kenneth Copeland are doing and what the other three Christians that I showed you were doing, but they strike me as relevantly the same um and here's another one you, you've probably seen this guy either because you're familiar with the funny um mashup uh mock mockery song of this guy called um what is it who 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 babakanda or something like that go check that out who babakanda um or or maybe you'll recognize him from the farting pastor there's a farting pastor video you can find on youtube with this guy in it um but here's his name is robert tilton he's a he was a televangelist here's him allegedly exercising the gift somata sedida la moko manda kishiti kolora bashata manda kalaboho masiki lo moko masa all right. Now, here's the here's what I want to start to do, to do though. So, uh, what I'm hoping to have illustrated with that sampling, and you can find tons of these on on YouTube. But what I'm hoping to illustrate with that sampling is that there is no meaningful way to distinguish between what genuine you know, spirit-filled believers are doing when they believe they're exercising glossolalia and what hucksters and heretics are doing when they claim to be exercising glossolalia. And that is a red flag in my mind. But it's not the only red flag. Another red flag is what the science appears to say. Listen to um, this excerpt from a uh, short video you can find on YouTube on the Oprah Winfrey Network channel. Of course, Oprah Winfrey's, you know, the source of all knowledge, right? No, I'm not saying she's any sort of authority, and she's not even in this video. But listen to what the science appears to indicate about, um, about glossolalia. But in the meantime, I found a linguist in Philadelphia, Paul DeLacy, who studies glossolalia. 
a term academics use for speaking in tongues. Well, is there, do you have any examples that we can listen to? Absolutely. Maybe? So here we have a 15-second example of glossolalia. Wow, I mean, it really does sound like a different language. This is a native English speaker? Yes, this guy is an American English speaker, and he speaks no other language. When someone speaks glossolalia, they use the same sounds from their native language, and they even obey the same restrictions. So if you speak English, for example, you never make a word that begins with dl. Paul told me that all of the sounds that people make when they're speaking in tongues seem to come from their native language. So this finding makes me question the idea that um, some other force is speaking through the person. I mean, how would you go about deciding how close this is to a, a language? Here's an example right here. This is a transcription of the audio we just heard. What we've done is we've looked for repeating sequences. We've tried to find sound sequences that show up again and again. And so far, we've been unsuccessful. Hmm. We haven't been able to spot any meaning in any of the, the glossolalia we have. Do you have any sense of um, how much control people have? They can speak glossolalia at the drop of a hat, just like we're having a conversation mm. now. It might mean that everyone can speak glossolalia if they want to, and uh, exactly what makes people glossolalia could be related to what babies do when they're first learning language. When they're speaking, they're not actually making words, they're making random strings of sounds, which is probably the same cognitive mechanism that is used when people go to speak glossolalia. <laughs> Few things are worth taking away from this research. Firstly, there's no discernible meaning. Like, you can take a, a language and you can, even if you can't understand most of it, you can uh, do a sufficient amount of analysis to identify some recurring markers of, of meaning. That is not found in glossolalia. That's number one. Number two, and this is, in, I think, very telling. Glossolalia is spoken in syllables that conform to the sounds and uh, rules of sounds that a person's home native most familiar language um, exhibits. In other words, you take somebody whose only language is Chinese, you know, like Mandarin, and another person whose only language is Greek, and another person whose only language is English, and another person whose only language is Spanish, and they each exercise glossolalia, you're not going to hear anything remotely um, uniting, something that's shared by all of them. They'll each be uh, syllables and sounds that are characteristic of their own language. I think that's really telling. And number three, and this is perhaps most important, you don't have, if you're a critic of glossolalia, as I am, you don't have to think that these people are all, people are all just faking what they're doing. Or even that it's demonic, although in some cases perhaps it is. The, the fact that there's something cognitively and neuroscientifically very akin to what happens when babies are learning how to talk by speaking gobbledygook, 
um, that can account for what ha is happening when people are doing what they believe to be, to be glossolalia. It doesn't have to be that they're making it up. They could be doing something with their brain that's every bit as real as what babies are doing. It's just not genuine. It doesn't have any meaning. doesn't have any content, despite the fact that it's believed to. All right? So those are some things that I want you to take away from that video. But there's more. Um, perhaps... One of the, uh, there's a host of reasons, not the least of which is its failure to match the biblical data, a host of reasons why I don't, um, why I think that there's no um, real, there's no truth to glossolalia in terms of what it's believed to be. Um, the, one of the things that most convinces me of that is how indistinguishable it is, not just between genuine Christians and fake Christians doing it, but between how Christians doing it and utterly non-Christians. In fact, some who are doing glossolalia as a result of drug use. So here's an example. Um, you can go find this video right now on YouTube where this guy on camera smokes DMT, which is a hallucinogen. Well, and watch what happens. Again, nothing meaningfully distinguishable between what you just watched and what you watched earlier when my friend John Tancock and other respectable Christians were doing. And it's not just drug users, it's also occultists. So here is a guy who goes by the name Sorcerer Tal, and you can find his video on YouTube. In fact, he's got several videos. He calls it tongue writing, but he also says another word for it is glossolalia. And here's him doing a, uh, offering an incantation f to help people understand how to practice glossolalia as part of their sorcery incantations. I'm going to now attempt a little different. This is this one also is sing songy. See, I have trouble with that one sometimes. That one don't really come out unless it needs, unless I actually need it. Let's try one more time. Okay, 
And it's not just occultists. Well, I suppose what I'm about to say would arguably qualify as a cult, but even if it doesn't, it's also in the new age. So here is what somebody is uh, claiming to be something called light language. Do a YouTube search on that and, and you'll find videos like this. Spirit, help me channel light language so that I can activate it within any individual watching this video. By the way, guys, I'm sorry, you'll have to be ready to turn the volume up and down. I don't have the ability to turn these clips up um, uh, on demand. I should have I should have made sure they were loud enough before I got this all set up, so I'm sorry. But just be ready to turn it up and down as needed. Now, until up until this point, what I have tried to illustrate with these videos is that, um, number one, the practice of glossolalia, what is believed to be glossolalia, by um, genuine, respectable, even evangelical conservative Christians, what, what they are doing is indistinguishable in any meaningful way from what hucksters and heretics and uh, occultists and hallucination, you know, uh, hallucinogenic drug users and new ageists and occultists do. That's a concern. Because if this is supposed to be a miraculous gift that is a sign, even, we read that in um, 1 Corinthians 14, um, how is it a sign of anything? And how is it edifying? A, a, how is it an edifying gift of the Spirit if it's indistinguishable in any meaningful way from anybody who uh, can appear to do it um, in occultism and the New Age and uh, drug use and so forth? Number two... Um, there is no identifiable markers of content, of meaning in glossolalia. Number three, there is a close correlation between a person's uh, mother tongue, native language, and the sounds, and sometimes even like the cadence and things, of the tongues that they express when they believe that they're practicing glossolalia now of course that's not you've heard a lot of people here that have like rolled their tongues a lot and yeah you're not hearing the, the, the many of the people you've heard are english speakers who don't roll their r's normally but these are also people who in many cases have studied spanish and they and they can roll their r's and um if you think that this is like a heavenly language 
rolling your R's is one may, one way to make it sound more legitimate than it might otherwise appear to be. Maybe even more beautiful than it might otherwise appear to be. So, so the fact that you're hearing like rolled R's doesn't challenge that. The point remains that the sound markers and things, when somebody practices glossolalia, is... Um, it, it, it is tightly correlated with their native language. All of these things are um, reasons, I think, to doubt that this is a legitimate gift uh, of the Spirit, a, leg a legitimate manifestation of a gift of the Spirit. Now, I said earlier that I think, while I have the utmost of respect for Charismatics and for Pentecostals, and I love them, nevertheless, I think that they're belief in and practice of this idea of glossolalia is damaging. What do I mean by that? I don't necessarily mean to their own walk. And if I give you that impression, I apologize. That wasn't my what I was trying to do. When I say I think this is damaging, what I mean is it's damaging in terms of Christianity's reputation among unbelievers. So here, for example, is a video you can find on YouTube. It's it's like 12 minutes long. I've cut it down to less than three. But I want you to see how um, the church, the global church, is perceived by the unbelieving world when what they associate with Christianity is glossolalia. All right? The phenomenon known as glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, is commonly associated with the Christian Pentecostal movement. But it also has roots in paganism, shamanism, and was even picked up by New Age spiritualists like Terence McKenna. It's language-like activity in the absence of meaning. Many people don't know just how widespread this is. It, it's a very, very widespread phenomenon, and it's, it's growing every day. It's real in the sense that it is believed to be real by the people who speak tongues and interpret tongues. Is it real in the sense that it is actual language? No. It seems to be consisting of nonsense syllables taken from the speech individuals are familiar with and strung together haphazardly. What I'm about to show you is a collection of some of the best glossolalia madness you will ever see. And bear in mind that these people are some of the ones advising the current president of the United States. Enjoy! <laughs> How much do you get paid to do to to answer the prey line? What? Is that baby talk?
Wanda Kishiti Oramana Riki Tiki Tata Ta. Dare to be curious, y'all. But don't drink the Kool Aid. Sorry, I accidentally muted my microphone. Um, what you just heard... I, I Actually, I didn't accidentally mute my microphone, by the way. I muted it because Kitty Corner to my office is a bathroom, and somebody went in there while the video was playing, and the toilet opened, and I was like, okay, I better mute for a minute. But I want to I speak directly to you who practice what you believe is glossolalia. What you just saw is how the world sees you. And that doesn't make it wrong, but it is something you need to be aware of. That is how the world sees you. And because you profess the name of Christ, the legitimate, and, and I do not at all doubt the legitimacy of your confession, but because you confess the name of Christ, this is how the world sees Christianity. Again, doesn't make your view of, of tongues wrong. But it is something that, if wrong, means you are doing a great deal of damage. I think you need to, I think you need to acknowledge that. Doesn't mean you're wrong. But if you're wrong, you're doing damage. That's what I mean when I say the um, glossolalia view of tongues, of the gift of tongues, is damaging to the unbelieving world. Uh, sorry, damaging to the reputation of Christianity in the eyes of the unbelieving world. So, um, some people have been asking in the chat, I don't understand why you would even do this in private. If, um, if it's not edifying. Well, that's the thing. But people who believe in glossolalia believe it is edifying. They just believe it's edifying personally. It edifies oneself, the person doing the speaking. Excuse me. You see, those who believe that the gift of tongues includes, if not is primarily, glossolalia, they think that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that the gift of tongues is number one, a heavenly language, a heavenly language of angels, of God, or something. And number two is meant for personal prayer to God. So because they believe that this is a um, private, uh, a personal language for praying to God, they think it edifies the person who's doing it. Not because they can understand it, but for some other mystical reason that maybe they would say is inexpressible. You can't really identify why it's edifying, but they certainly feel edified when they do it. So I hope that answers the question in the chat. But anyway, number so their interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14. And by the way, I should say, if I'm not mistaken, there simply is no argument to be made in favor of this understanding of tongues outside of 1 Corinthians 14. 
Nothing. You will not find any support. Now, there's a few texts outside of 1 Corinthians 14 that are thought to sort of be consistent with this view of tongues. So when Paul says in Romans that, you know, sometimes the Spirit uh, intercedes for us in groanings that we can't express, that's arguably at least consistent with this view of glossolalia. But it's not an argument for this understanding of glossolalia. So the only text in all of Scripture that could even remotely serve as support for this understanding of tongues is 1 Corinthians 14. And according to people who practice it, 1 Corinthians 14 says essentially three things about tongues. Number one, it's a heavenly language. Number two, it's meant for personal, self-edifying prayer. And number three, it's a language that neither the speaker nor the hearer can understand, with the exception of those who are exercising the miraculous gift of interpretation of tongues. And the reason why I really kicked that dead horse, is that the right word, uh, with all those videos I showed you, is, is because of this. I don't think that this is actually the right understanding of 1 Corinthians 14. And what I want to argue, and this is going to be the rest of our time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present what I think is a faithful reading of 1 Corinthians 14, according to which tongues, as described there, are consistent with the xenoglossia that is recorded in Acts 2. And if you um, were to become convinced that what I'm offering is a faithful reading of Acts uh, of 1 Corinthians 14, but that sees it as glossal, uh, xenoglossia instead of glossolalia, then you should prefer the reading I'm about to offer you for the sake of the church's evangelistic witness. If the reading I'm about to offer is equally legitimate, and I'm going to argue that it's actually far more legitimate than the um, glossolalia reading of 1 Corinthians 14, then that would explain all the phenomena that we just enumerated. The fact that there's no discernible meaning to it. It's just gobbledygook. It would explain why, when somebody's doing it, what they the, the syllables and sounds they make are ultimately coming forth from their own native language. It would explain why people can do it who aren't just faithful Christians, but heretics and occultists and drug users. It would explain all that phenomenon. And it would be a better reading of 1 Corinthians 14 for the, in terms of the church's evangelistic witness. It would, if, if I'm right, then Christianity looks a little bit less ridiculous. Not, not ridiculous. There's still all sorts of other reasons why Christianity looks ridiculous to the eyes of unbelievers. But this is one reason. And if we can remove it, then that's one more barrier. In other words, you, if you're not, if you don't know this, the reason why this show is called The Apologetics is because it's a combination of the words theology and apologetics. The, the, the first four letters of the word theology and all but the first letter of the word apologetics. The apologetics. And what I try to do is show how sound biblical theology can all ha, ha, overlaps with the apologetics endeavor. The, 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 the defense of the Christian faith. And this is arguably one of the most striking examples of of in my mind anyway, of what I what I just said there about sound biblical theology uh, benefiting the apologetics endeavor. 
Because if you accept my view, my reading of 1 Corinthians 14, and you embrace it, and, and, and now people see that Christianity doesn't have this doctrine of tongues, you've just removed yet another obstacle, um, the kind of obstacle to faith that, we're, as, that as apologists we're so, so often trying to tear down. So that's why I spent, I mean, I've just spent an hour almost laying the groundwork for what we'll now spend the rest of our time in, which is a verse-by-verse exegesis of 1 Corinthians 14, because I hope that you will now want to accept the reading I'm about to offer. That's my hope. I suspect that's unlikely, and the reason is because of what I said earlier. For those who practice what they believe to be speaking in tongues and, and are doing glossolalia, it's a deeply emotional, intimate experience. And that, for that reason alone, you may not want to accept the reading I'm about to offer. But I'm hoping that I've given you some reasons to, at the very least, think that there's, there is reason to want to believe that what I'm about to offer is the right reading of 1 Corinthians 14. I don't know if I've succeeded in that. I'll leave that to you. But with all of that having been said, let's get into 1 Corinthians 14. And the reading that I'm about to offer you is, I'm, I'm summarizing it from the get-go. I'm, I'm pulling from a, um, a, a an academic article that you can find in the journal Biblical Theology Bulletin, volume 27, issue number four. It's by Bob Zerhusen, and it's called The Problem Tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, A Reexamination. And I think you can find this for free online. This is what he says, and this is, I think, uh, the right reading of 1 Corinthians 14. He says, Corinth, and this is, by the way, not controversial, this first part. Corinth was a highly multilingual seaport city. Okay, In other words, Corinth is not just full of people whose uh, everybody's native language is Greek. No, Greek for many of, pe of the people at Corinth would have been their second language, the language that they, the common tongue. If, if you, uh, well, it would, it, the Greek was, I mean, in fact, that's what koine means, sort of common. Uh, Greek would have been the common tongue, the tongue that was used to, to facilitate trade and business between people whose native tongues was something else. That's not controversial, but that's the starting point. So Corinth was a highly multilingual seaport city in which people would, and here's the key, here, here's the explanation of 1 Corinthians 14, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Um, a city in which people would sometimes speak out in the Corinthian church service, worshiping God in the language with which they were most familiar and without translation. If some of the men, and this is a, a point that I want you to keep in mind as we go through the reading, because I don't want you to, I want you, I want to disabuse you of the notion that the the gift of tongues has got to be um, a miraculous gift, like a like a like a healing, for example. Bob rightly points out if some of the manifestations of the spirit are not miraculous abilities. I just think, you know, there's those lists in those passages I showed you earlier that include the gift of administration and the gift of help, the gift of service, the gift of teaching. If some of the manifestations of the Spirit are not miraculous abilities, then abilities in multiple languages and translations of multiple languages could also be non-miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. So, according to this view, yes, everybody speaks a native language, but not everybody has the gift of speaking in tongues. The gift of speaking in tongues, according to this view, is having a um, a, 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 a spirit-given um, ability uh, 
to speak multiple languages and translate multiple languages from one to another. And he says, we should not be surprised that in multilingual Corinth, of all places, Paul would consider those with natural but spirit-given, like administration and helps, natural abilities and languages and translation to be essential persons in the local church. In a place like Corinth, somebody who's got a, a spirit-given gift with languages and translation would be vital. But somebody who speaks out in their native tongue when many of the people in the congregation, if anybody can't understand it, well, that would be a problem. And that's what the reading I'm about to offer. So let's go through 1 Corinthians 14 verse by verse. We won't go through the whole chapter, but we will go through this, the, the, the relevant portions. So verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Nothing particularly controversial here. I'm not going to spend any time on this verse. Verse 2 begins with, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, remember earlier I mentioned that somebody in the chat had asked, why would you even do this privately if it's not edifying? Well, according to people, uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, who believe in this understanding of tongues, it's precisely, not exclusively, but largely for this very reason, that this gift is thought to mean that tongues are intended as a heavenly prayer language, right? Because it says people who are doing it aren't talking to men, they're talking to God. But the text goes on to say for, and this is the Greek word gar. It's, it's a post-positive thing saying, if you've ever heard the phrase, if you see the word therefore, you want to ask what it's there for, <laughs> I think is the way that that phrase goes. Well, the text says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, because, or for, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. You see, that gar, that for, that because, explains why a tongue speaker speaks only to God and not men. It's not that the gift of tongues is intended for prayer. It's that because somebody who speaks in one of these um, other than common tongues in the Corinthian congregation is unable to be understood by the people in the congregation, the only person they're speaking to is God. Nobody else understands. This idea of it being a, a language for speaking to God and not men isn't tongues the, the purpose of tongues. Rather, if you speak in a language in front of a congregation that nobody in the congregation understands, the only one who does understand is God. And to those present, the person who's speaking a language that God understands, they won't understand. And the person will be speaking mysteries in words that the congregation doesn't know. Now, this no one understands phrase is thought by, I think, anybody who defends glossolalia to mean absolutely no one, not even the speaker. It's not the only reason in 1 Corinthians 14 that they think that. We'll get to others. But this is a big reason. The, the idea is no one understands, not even the speaker. But that's a misunderstanding of the phrase no one understands. It's not meant absolutely. Imagine if I went to a conference and I, I gave a lecture and I came home to my family and I said, I thought 
that I was saying something that would be received well, but no one understood me. Do you think that my family's going to think I'm talking about myself? Of course not. When I say no one understands, I mean none of the people I'm speaking to. And you'll see that bear out as we go through the text. So this no one understands isn't meant absolutely in the sense of including even the speaker. Um, Bob Zerhusen puts it this way. When one of these people spoke out in his or her heart language, a language from a more remote area like Lyconian or Demotic Egyptian, the group or congregation would not know or understand that language. How would Paul describe this from the perspective of the hearers of this unintelligible language? Well, from their perspective, no one would understand. The language speaker would be speaking mysteries. See how well that fits? The, if, if the person is speaking something that none of the people in the congregation understands, the phenomena would be described by Paul precisely the way that Paul describes what he's talking about here. He goes on to uh, point out that this is what Charles Hodge and Robert Thomas have said about it. The meaning is not that no man living, but that no man present could understand. Uh, Robert Thomas, that, that was Charles Hodge. Robert Thomas says it means that no one in the local gathering was of the particular linguistic background represented by the tongue's message. Susan, no, of course I'm not saying Paul was deceived. I have no idea what you're saying. I'm sorry. So... This, this verse, verse 2, is in no way support for glossolalia. Quite the contrary, it indicates explicitly that the reason this gift of tongues, when exercised, results in speaking to men but not God in a congregation is because, um, is because no one understands him. That connection, that logical connection communicated by Gar would not make sense on the, on the um, charismatic reading if this was meant to be a personal prayer language. But let's move on to verse 3. On the other hand, Paul continues, the people who prophesy, sorry, on the other hand, the one who prophesies, not the one who speaks in tongues, but the one who prophesies, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. You see, the contrast, the focus, and you'll see this as we continue to go through the text, the focus isn't about the speaker. The focus is upon the people hearing the speaker. Um, you see, the issue here is that if you speak in the local congregation in words that can't be understood by anybody you're speaking to, your words can't edify them. But prophecy delivered in the common tongue, Koine Greek, can edify everyone present because it was the common tongue. Um, Let's say that you went to a church in some country where, um, you know, like right on the corner of multiple countries coming together, and you have from these different countries with their different native languages, you have people gathered at this church, and they all primarily speak whatever language is native to the country they're from. But as is the case with many countries throughout the world, a common second language is English. So if you're in such a church and you're the only person there from, say, China, probably not wise to speak in Mandarin because you'll be the only one who under you and God will be the only ones who understand what you're saying. But if you speak in English, yeah, that might not be your common, your native tongue, and it may not be the native tongue of the people you're listening to, but at least you'll be able to edify them with your message. 
Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up or edifies himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, when it comes to this verse, a lot of cessationists will say that, like John MacArthur, that when Paul says the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, he's, he's speaking sarcastically. Like, um, yeah, you, you edify yourself, but you want to edify the church. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's true. The one who speaks in a tongue does build up himself. Because worshiping God in one's native tongue certainly edifies oneself. But it doesn't edify others. Prophecy, however, delivered in the common tongue, can edify all who hear. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. I want you to. I want you to have the gift of tongues, or at the very least, I want you to um, speak in your native tongues. But more than that, I want you to prophesy because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets because the person who prophesies builds up the church. You see, Bob Zerhusen puts it well. He says, Paul, as a dyadic personality, must reconcile two competing values. On the one hand, everything must be done in such a way that the benefit of the group is maintained. You may not be familiar with that word dyadic. I wasn't when I read the article, but it means group-oriented rather than individualistic. But on the other hand, yes, so as a dyadic personality, Paul wants everything to be focused on the, the benefit of the whole congregation. But on the other hand, Paul wants people whose native languages are not Greek to be able to freely worship God in the language most familiar to them, provided they translate. Because if you, can, if you can worship God and pray to God in the congregation in your own native language, that's going to be edifying to you in a way that co the common language won't be. But if you can translate that into the common tongue, then you not only get the benefit of speaking in that personal, that, that native tongue, but you also have the benefit of being able to edify the people who are hearing. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Notice what I said earlier is continuing to be true. Paul's concern here is not really about the speaker. His concern is with the hearer. He's, he's saying, how, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how am I going to benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or training? It's all about the hearers. It's all about the building up of the church, of the congregation. He goes on to offer some analogies to illustrate his point. If even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Notice again, Paul is concerned with the sound hearer, not the sound producer. And he says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone understand what is said? You will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages, he says. I'm going to come back to that in a second. That's the ESV translation, and most translations render this language. But the word is phoné. We'll come back to that in a second. There are doubtless many different languages, Paul goes on, in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner 
to me. Though the word foreigner, by the way, translates the word barbaros, which is where we get the word barbarian from. Um, the Greeks prided themselves on their on their uh, intellig the intelligibility and the profundity and the eloquence of their language. And everybody around them that couldn't speak Greek sounded to Greek speakers as if they were just going bar, 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 bar. And so they called them barbarians. That's where we get barbarian from. So um, there are many, doubtless many different somethings in the world, and none of them is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the something, I will be a, a barbarian, a bar, 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 bar to the speaker, and the speaker a bar, 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 bar to me. Now, here is arguably the first uh, even remotely significant challenge to the reading that I've been offering so far. It may not strike you as clear why it might challenge the reading that I've offered so far. But here's the issue. If this, like the flute and the harp and the bugle, is an analogy for tongues then tongues can't be languages, right? <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm talking about tongues and then I offer you an analogy, or sorry, languages, and then I offer you an analogy that is about languages, it's not an analogy at all. And that would prove that the tongues aren't languages in that sense. So this strikes many as a real challenge to the reading that I've here, here offered. But I want to propose that languages is not the right word for this, the, the, the right English word to translate the Greek word phoné. First of all, if you were to do pull up a graph like this, a chart, uh, this is from Lagos Bible Software, a chart that shows how the word phoné is used throughout the New Testament and how it's translated, you're going to find that um, the vast majority is voice, and then there's various um, words for sound and things like that. But out of that huge mass of uses of the word, only two uses of the word are translated language in the ESV. And they're in this, this passage. In fact, it's 139 times that this word appears in the New Testament. And we're supposed to accept that it's used to mean languages here and here alone? Two out of 139 uses of the word? Really? It's certainly possible. But that should be a uh, that that should that should start to raise a red flag in your mind for, for in terms of interpreting this as language. What's more, Paul, the, the ESV for some reason does not translate a word that appears before phoné. If you put in brackets the part they didn't translate, what you would read is there are doubtless many different kinds of phoné in the world. Now that's important because what in the world would kinds of languages be in the world in, in, in any way that is relevant to what Paul is talking about? You see, here's what one commentator, uh, I think this is one of the um, basic package, uh, the, the basic Logos package um, commentaries you can find by R.C.H. Lenski, his interpretation of First and Second Corinthians. He says, while it is true that in the classics, that's hundreds of years prior to Koine Greek. While it's true that in the classics, phone, or the plural phoni, at times means languages, and while some interpreters think that the word has this meaning here, even those people pause before gene phonon, kinds of languages. 
because kinds of um, languages doesn't really make sense. I mean, in today's world, right? We have this taxonomy. We've got uh, we've got the um, Romance languages, right? The divine f- derived from Latin, and we've got the Chinese, you know, the Asian languages, and we've got the Native American uh, Native Americas languages. You know, there's there's these categories, of, but these aren't things that Paul has in mind or is or is even familiar with. So even the very people who think that the word phone here means language pause before translating it as such. Because kinds of language doesn't really make sense. And that's why some translations translate it in a way that is consistent with the other 137 uses of the word. Here's the NRSV. There are doubtless many different kinds of sounds. Or the King James Version. There may there are so many kinds of voices I'm not muted anymore. Gary, you must be behind. Okay, that really scared me there for a moment. All right, so there are translations that that see that the, the word here doesn't mean language. Um, now, here's Lenski again. He says, Afonon, without sound, does not suit the idea of languages. This is, a language doesn't have a meaning. A sound does, though, in um, in many languages. So without sound or without meaning doesn't make sense if phoné means language, but it does make sense if it means sound. He goes on to say that this is true also regarding tein dunamin tes phonés, the power of the sound or the meaning of the sound. And so we are, obliga- we are obliged to translate this, there are so many kinds of voices. That is, sounds made by the throat and the mouth. He goes on to say that Paul mentions but one speaker and only himself as the listener. To be sure, he hears this man's voice in, in this hypothetical that, that uh, analogy that Paul is offering. Um, he hears the man's voice, but hearing the man's language would be out of place. But unless Paul comprehends the meaning of what this voice communicates... Paul would quite naturally call the man who utters these strange sounds with his voice, again, this would be non-Greek, which Paul would understand, but the hypothetical person he's talking about would not, he would quite naturally call the man who utters these strange sounds with his voice a barbarian. Remember what we said? The word barbarian in the Greek, barbaros, comes from the fact that people who don't speak Greek sound like they're going bar, 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 bar. You see, that's what happens if you're somebody who speaks Greek and somebody comes to you speaking in some other language that you don't understand, the sounds they're making have no meaning. That's what Paul is saying here. So he's not using languages as an analogy for glossolalia. He's using the sounds of a language that a particular person might express as an analogy for speaking in a language. Um, Zerhusen puts it this way, Paul is making assertions that all voices are inherently intelligible. Everybody who speaks a language, their sounds, their voices are innately intelligible because that's what the sounds of language do. They communicate. But if we do not understand the voice of another human being, we become gibberish talkers to each other. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on in verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 
Again, nothing controversial here, so we can continue. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret or translate. I would encourage you to think of this word interpret as translate. That's how it's used in Acts 9.36, where they're literally translate. The author, Luke, is telling you that this word in Aramaic is translated such and such. So Paul says, I, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may translate. For if I pray in a language, a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now here's where we get to the next um, the, the next thing that could come close to anything like a legitimate challenge to the reading I've offered here so far. Firstly, why in the world would Paul tell somebody who is speaking their own native tongue in the Corinthian congregation to pray that he can translate? Wouldn't everybody in the Corinthian congregation speak as their second language or, or a second language, Greek? And wouldn't they therefore be able to speak in their own native tongue and then translate? Why would they need God's help for that? Well, that kind of objection reflects an incredibly naive understanding of the work that has to go into faithful translation. Um, sorry, this, this, so that can't someone translate their native tongue into common Greek in the Corinthian? That's the objection to the reading that I've been offering. Here's David Crystal in the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Language from 1989. He says, there is no task more complex than translation. Translators not only need to know their source language well, but they also must have a thorough understanding of the field of knowledge covered by the source text and of any social, cultural, or emotional connotations that need to be specified in the target language if, and this is critical, if the intended effect is to be conveyed. And all of that special awareness that he just described, David Crystal, needs also to be present in the person's mind, um, in their knowledge base, for the target language. So that points of special phrasing, contemporary fashions of taboos and expressions, local or regional expectation, and so on, can all be taken into account. You see, if you think that somebody who's who speaks in a native language but then also understands as a second language some you know, common language that a lot of people speak, if you think that it should just be easy-peasy for that person to say in their native language what they're saying in their worship to God and then just simply translate into common, um, uh, the, the common tongue what it is that they're saying, you do not understand the complexities of translation. There is a reason why... Um, professional translators are professional translators. Tons of people can speak multiple languages. Tons of people in biblical and theological studies speak English or some other language as a native language and then can also work in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic or whatever, Latin. But it takes a special gift, a special set of gifts, a special toolkit for somebody to be able to faithfully Take what is spoken in a in liturgy and worship and prayer with all that is being expressed in that source language and then deliver all of that effect into the target language. That's a special skill set. And yeah, Paul would encourage people to pray that God would give them the ability to translate. 
to interpret, to translate what they say into the common tongue. As Zerhusen puts it, since translation involves the factors that Crystal refers to here, wouldn't it make sense for Paul to tell the language speaker to ask God for help in translating into Greek, his second language? And of course, indisputably, the answer is yes. That is, it would make sense for Paul to do that. But the second part here in verse 14 is also a challenge to the reading that I've offered so far. Because my mind is unfruitful is thought by believers in, oh, oh, I love this. Thank you, James, otherwise known as iQuickKZ. He says in chat, I'm a translator myself. Translating is not merely a matter of being able to speak both languages, but also being familiar field specific, with field-specific terminology, lingo, jargon terms, and so forth. Of course, Paul would want somebody to pray that they can do that translation work for the congregation. Because then they get the benefit of speaking in their own language in worship to God, and then the congregation gets the benefit too. Anyway, so in verse 14, my mind is unfruitful, is thought by believers in glossolalia to mean something like, I don't understand what I am saying. That's the way that New Living Translation translates it. But that neglects, flat out ignores, what fruitfulness and unfruitfulness mean in this context. You see, listen to the various things that Paul is saying throughout this passage we're going through. A, tongue, a person who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. If I'm speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? The church may be built up. How will I benefit you? If the bugle player produces an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Right? You see, this is all about fruitfulness in the sense of the speaker bearing fruit among the hearers. In context, fruitfulness is edifying hearers who can understand the speaker. I mean, and that's just obviously what it means to say the mind is unfruitful. We'll come back to that. Uh, Robert Thomas says this, The present discussion does not center on the activity or non-activity of the tongue speaker's mind, but rather on the potential benefit derived by listeners, a benefit which is foregone by speaking in a language that the hearers can't understand. Um... You see, this, this understanding of um, my mind is unfruitful being uh, I don't understand what I am saying, what that really is a good, the way that would really be represented is the way that the New Jerusalem Bible translates this. My mind derives no fruit from it. But notice that's backwards. Paul didn't say that the prayer is unfruitful to my mind, which is the charismatic reading. Rather, he says, it's one's mind that bears no fruit. One foregoes what would have otherwise been the fruit that would have been born in the minds of, in the, in the people hearing. Because by speaking in a language they can't understand, you're not teaching them anything. You're not helping them. You're not bearing fruit. Zerhusen says the whole context of 1 Corinthians 14 is the effect upon the hearers of untranslated languages. 
Paul is also writing as a dyadic personality. We talked about that earlier. It means group-oriented rather than individualistic. He's writing as a dyadic personality, and he's not concerned about individual psychology. His concern is the edification of the group. That's what it means to say that the mind is unfruitful. It fails to edify the hearer. Your mind fails to bear fruit in the people that are hearing. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 should be taken as my spirit prays, but my mind does not produce fruit in others. This says nothing about whether or not the speaker understood his own utterance. So Paul goes on in verse 15, what am I to do then? I will pray with my spirit. That's my heart, my my connection to God, my um I I, I will I will praise God with all that I am from the depth of my spirit, from the depth of my heart, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, verse 16, if you give thanks in your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? This is the unfruitfulness Paul is concerned about. Your mind will not bear fruit if the people you're speaking in front of don't know what you're saying. And so Paul says, I will pray with my spirit and with my mind. I will thanksgive with, I will give thanks in my spirit and with my mind. I will worship with my spirit and with my mind. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. This is the unfruitfulness that Paul is concerned about. Verses 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. Mind you, Paul was a, he was a mission, he was the, the missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles. He, more than any of the other apostles, needed to have a gift and the ability to speak in multiple languages and translate into others. But nevertheless, in church, although I'm gifted in all these languages, many of which not even the Corinthians would have known, even there, despite that I know all these other languages, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the unfruitfulness Paul is concerned about. As Zerhusen explains, Paul, as cross-cultural missionary to the Gentiles, is thankful for his own linguistic abilities, and would, but would rather speak five intelligible words for the edification of the group, which can only occur when the speaking is intelligible. Verses 27 and 28. So here I've skipped a number of verses, but that's because I don't think they're really relevant to the, the critique I'm here offering. Verses 27 and 28, if any speak in a language, let, and by language here he means other than, a, other than the common language. If any speak in a language, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone translate. I've now replaced interpret translate. But if there is no one to translate, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. This, to me, is like the last nail in the coffin 
that refutes the glossolalia reading. Because if the person who speaks in a tongue is speaking to himself and to God, that implies that the tongue speaker does understand his or her own words. Because certainly God understands it, right? If the speaker were speaking a language that not even the speaker understood, the only person that person would be speaking to is God. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is that the speaker... If these, if he's speaking in a language that no one in the congregation understands, that speaker, yes, is speaking to God, but also speaking to himself. This is the nail, the final, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the back, the final nail in the coffin. The glossolalia reading of 1 Corinthians 14 fails for many reasons I've elucidated as I've gone through these these verses, but this is the last of those. Um, refutations last of these things that are inconsistent with the glossolalia reading because what paul is saying is that the person who is speaking in one of these tongues is not just speaking to god you remember you remember what we saw earlier paul begins the chapter with somebody who speaks in a tongue no one understands him he speaks only to god and he speaks to god not to men but paul is saying he speaks to himself the person who speaks in tongues so that means he can understand what he's saying, which means it's a human language. Was that it? That was it. So <laughs> uh, that was a bit of an abrupt ending, but I hope that you've seen something here. Uh, you may not have. You may, you may ultimately disagree with me and that's fine. I, 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 I've spoke, spoken very forcefully and I stand by what, I'm, what I've been saying, um, but you may disagree and that's fine. But I, what I hope you see is just how easily, how sensibly, how consistently. Oh, verse 22. Okay. Somebody's asking me if I would please cover verse 22. Taylor is asking me that in chat. So give me a moment to pull up my Logos Bible software and I'll take a stab at it. One second. Um, if I go, where is it? I got to find the right scene in my, um, uh, in my, uh, my, my streaming software, because you have to, if you're not familiar with how, how these streams work, I mean, there are different ways people do it, but I, I use a program where you can pre-configure these different scenes. Um, where you combine different elements and layer them so that they appear on the screen in the way that you want to. And um, I need to um, bring up the one that I have configured for Logos. So give me a moment. You know what? This will be easy. I don't know why I'm going through all this trouble. Hold on. Um, almost there, guys. Sorry. Uh, what in the world? Okay, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to keep trying to figure this out. I'll just read the text and, uh, and and try to field the question. So, um, verse so First Corinthians fourteen twenty two. That's the question. Paul says, "Thus, oh, okay. So, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now." 
I didn't cover this verse because while I do think it is, <laughs> yes, Winston, this is what happens when you get me off script. Technically, I'm not scripted. I'm I'm using the slides I've prepared, but but yeah, you've gotten me off my slides. The reason I didn't cover verse 22 is because while I do, it does seem to me as if this is support for the reading that I've offered, but not but not the kind of solid proof because the way that um, human or that cessationists typically, uh, but people who hold to my view of this understanding of tongues, uh, what they will all argue is that verse 22 says tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, what would that mean? It would mean that the only way you're speaking in one of these tongues could possibly be a sign for unbelievers is if you're speaking in a human language. No unbeliever looks at you going blah, 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 and thinks, oh, that's a sign. But what does he say? He, he just has, he's just quoted in verse 21, Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, here's verse 22, Paul, uh, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. You see, the, the unbelievers, and, and here I think he has in mind, in particular, Jewish unbelievers, um, you know, the, the, the passage in Isaiah is saying people are going to come to you, Jewish people, in foreign languages and tongues and speak to you. And you're not going to listen, but you're not going to, uh, they're not, the Jews that are hearing that will still not listen to me. So coming and speaking in languages that are something other than Hebrew, but about the works and character of the Lord, they're still not going to accept it. And that will, that will be a sign, I think, is the kind of thing that Paul is saying. Well, so, but even if you don't th feel that way, there's no way in which saying Rabashida Hiba or whatever is going to be a sign for unbelievers. But if you speak in a language they can understand, that is the only way, however you understand the sign to function, that it can function as a sign. Now, why, though, did I not include this, this verse in, as part of my case for this reading of 1 Corinthians 14? Because I think that people who believe in glossolalia offer what is at least a plausible rebuttal to that, which is that he, Paul, what Paul is saying in verse 22 isn't absolute. It's not that tongues are always a sign for unbelievers and not for believers. It's just that generally they are or something like that but that wouldn't preclude you from being what they would probably say is that the gift of human languages is the sign for unbelievers but not the private prayer language <laughs> that's funny it was what somebody just said in the chat now i don't think that's a great rebuttal i mean it seems to me that what paul says is pretty straightforward tongues are a sign not for believers um, that seems to be pretty straightforward, and, and but the the rebuttal that I just offered, I, I don't feel like that rebuttal is completely without plausibility. And moreover, where it does start to get a little bit, I think, implausible, is that if what you're saying is that human languages, xenoglossia, are a sign for unbelievers, but that 
glossolalia is for private prayer. The problem with that is that what has Paul been talking about throughout? He's been talking about what the glossolalia advocate believes is the private tongue, the private language, the private prayer language. So then what place would verse 22 have in that? Why would he say, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, if what he's been talking about isn't xenoglossia, but uh, glossolalia? That does strike me as a bit implausible, but not absolutely so. And that's why I didn't make a big deal out of this. But I will say this. If you accept the reading that I've offered, which is that the, the tongues about which Paul is speaking throughout this entire chapter is xenoglossia, speaking human languages, then what he says in verse 22 is exactly consistent with that. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean you wouldn't use them in the, um, uh, in the company of other believers. But what it would mean is that as on its own, without being translated for the benefit of the people, for the edification of the people hearing, if you don't have that, then it's not functioning as a sign as it's intended to be when it's not understood or in, in other contexts. There's probably still some work to do there, but it seems to me, at least prima facie, um, verse 22 makes a lot more sense um, in the reading I've offered than in uh, the glossolalia reading. So I don't, I don't know if that's what you were um, hoping I would talk to, um, Taylor. But uh, but yeah, that's so. So basically, what I would say is that verse twenty-two I think is tough for a glossolalia reader to um, to account for, but not impossible. But some of the other things I've mentioned, I do think are they do refute the glossolalia reading. Um, just to reiterate some of those things, when Paul says one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, that doesn't mean that's the purpose of tongues because he goes on to say, because no one understands him. The reason you're speaking to men, but uh, not to men, but to God, when you speak in one of these languages in the Corinthian congregation is because nobody that you're, nobody that's hearing you speak can understand you. If it was meant as a private prayer language, that logical connection would make no sense. That was one thing. Another thing is that when he says the mind is unfruitful, it's in the context of what you're saying, bearing fruit in the, among the hearers. It's, it doesn't mean my mind, it doesn't mean what I pray bears no fruit in my mind. That's the exact, well, almost the opposite of what Paul says. He's saying my mind doesn't bear fruit for the hearer. And then he says the one who speaks in a tongue, and if it can't be translated, if nobody can understand it, doesn't only speak to God, they also speak to themselves. And that was the final nail in the coffin, the straw that broke the camel's back. So... I want to read you something that Wayne Grudem says now. I, I should have prepared a slide for this, but I'll just read it. Because I think it really captures the gist of the case that I've tried to offer here. Um, let me see if I can find it really quick. Hold on. Um, <laughs> hold on. I didn't prepare for this. I apologize. Uh, he says, okay, you know, well, hold on. Just give me one more second to see if I can find it. Um, oh, specific gifts. Here we go. Um, 
Where is it? I'm almost... I, I'll, I'll wrap this up here in a second, guys, so just bear with me. I'm just trying to find the tongues chapter here, and for some reason I'm having... Oh, here we go. Uh, tongues and interpretation. Okay. So here's what he says. Um, I'm almost there. Some have... Ob Listen to this. This is Wayne Grudem, who believes in glossolalia. He believes that the Bible... This is the second edition, but you'll find him say the same thing in the first. He says, Some have objected that speaking in tongues must always consist of speech in known human languages since that is what happened at Pentecost. Now, I'm, by the way, skeptical that that is, in fact, what people like me... Um, the, the basis of our objection. I'm I'm not sure I've ever heard any person who believes that tongues are always human languages like I do. Um, yes, that's right, TM1KE. Pentecostals do think they are talking in languages of angels, and I've just shown that that doesn't work. Um, I've never heard somebody who shares my understanding of tongues say, because they're speaking in human languages in Acts 2, therefore they can only ever be what they're doing when they when they use tongues. I've, I've never heard that argument from people like me. Maybe some do. Rather, the objection is, un unless and until you can show that there are other places where it means this other glossolalia thing, we should assume, by default, that it's xenoglossia, the speaking of human languages. Doesn't mean you couldn't overturn that assumption if the proof was there, but it, that should be the starting assumption. And I think that's true. But that's not the point I want to get at. Listen to what Grudem goes on to say. He says, but the fact that speaking in tongues occurred in known human languages once in Scripture does not require that it always happen with known languages. And here's the key. Especially when another description of speaking in tongues, namely 1 Corinthians 14, indicates exactly the opposite. Now, the reason why I wanted to read you that is because the whole... Remember what I said toward the beginning of this. The only biblical basis for arguing that the gift of tongues is glossolalia is 1 Corinthians 14. There is no basis anywhere else in Scripture for that understanding. And what Grudem says here, and I think you'll find this kind of thing said by many charismatics, what he says is that we shouldn't, we have no, there's no reason to assume that the gift of tongues has always got to be known human languages. If you have a place elsewhere in scripture, namely 1 Corinthians 14, that explicitly teaches otherwise. Well, but what does that mean? It means that if there's a better reading of 1 Corinthians 14 that does not teach otherwise, da, 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 it's human languages, just like what happened in Acts 2. Because what reason would there be for to conclude anything else? There would not be any. So that's the gist of the case I've tried to hear offer. I Let me sum, sum up what I've done today, and then I'll let you guys go. Number one, I offered some reasons for being concerned about the legitimacy of glossolalia. The fact that it's not just Christians who can do it, it's also heretics and occultists and drug users and so forth, New Ageists. They all do it too, and it's indistinguishable. And also, the, the there is no discernible markers of meaning in glossolalia. 
And the glossolalia always reflects the traits of their native language. Um, so, so, so there's all of that. So, so number one, those are, I think are reasons to at least suspect that glossolalia is not what it is thought to be by its uh, practitioners. Then number two, I said, what is also the case is that because glossolalia is especially associated with certain denominations of Christianity, therefore, unbelievers, when they, they think Christianity is stupid and absurd because glossolalia in their eyes is so obviously stupid and absurd for all the reasons I just mentioned. It has no markers of meaning. It's just haphazard combinations of syllables from their mother tongue. And, and it's something that all sorts of people throughout the world from pagan religions and drug users and so forth can do. And so they think, well, if this is what Christianity is, it's just another one of these dumb, stupid religions that people follow. So, number one, I gave you some reasons to suspect that glossolalia isn't what it is claimed to be by its practitioners. And then number two, I gave you a reason for hoping that there is a reading of 1 Corinthians 14 that does not require us to look like idiots to the world. And then I offered just such a reading. And as part of that reading, I not only gave you a reading that is equally plausible as the glossolalia reading, but eminently more so. Because I showed you that the reason why somebody who speaks in it speaks not to men but to God is because nobody understands him. And I showed you that the reason the mind is unfruitful is not because the prayer fails to bear fruit in the mind. It's not the prayer that's unfruitful. It's the mind, the understanding that, that what the person understands that they're saying bears no fruit because no one hears. That's through both before and after that particular verse, that's what Paul is saying. Fruitfulness is about the person speaking failing to bear fruit in the, among the hearers. And because at the end of all of this, Paul says the one who speaks in a tongue doesn't only speak to God, they also speak to themselves. That proves that this is not glossolalia. So I get it. I get that you, that, that we as Christians should want and charismatics do want a supernaturally vibrant and experiential faith. I get it. I do too. Probably not as much as you, which is a deficiency on my part. But I get it. And I also get that if you're somebody that has become accustomed to speaking in glossolalia, it probably feels incredibly intimate and meaningful and powerful to you. So I understand that this is a hard pill to swallow and you're going to be disinclined to agree. I understand. But would you please do me a favor and think about it for a while and pray about it for a while and remember those facts about glossolalia that call into question its legitimacy. I remember I debated somebody on this once uh, several years ago. It was on, I don't remember, I think it was on Pastor With No Answers. I debated a, um, a wonderful Christian woman in New Zealand, and I made that point. I said, you cannot tell the difference between Christians doing glossolalia and what people in pagan religions do. And you know what she said? So? But is that really the sensible reaction to that observation? No. Because what is this alleged to be? 
a miraculous supernatural gift of God, a, 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 or even not miraculous, but still nevertheless spirit given, like administration and helps and service and so forth. And, you know, I suppose you could make the argument that, yeah, but you can find teachers and administrators and helpers and stuff in other religions as well. Okay, that's something to consider. I'll, I'll think about that. But at least on the surface of it, before I gave it that additional bit of thought, that seemed like a reason to doubt it. But even if I were to talk myself out of thinking that that's a reason to doubt its legitimacy, you've still got those other ones. The fact that there's no markers of content and it just is an expression of your own mother tongue and the sounds that your mother tongue makes. Think about those and pray about those. And then think and pray about the fact that you make Christianity look stupid. Now that doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong. I'm a young earth creationist. I make Christianity look stupid too. I do. And that should make me want to embrace uh, a reading of the relevant texts that is not a young earth reading. And I do. I, I do. Because even people I, I, I very much love and admire and respect think I'm foolish. So I do want to. And you should want to. You should want to, to, to be given a reading of 1 Corinthians 14 that allows you to avoid making the faith look stupid. You should want that. I'm not saying you have you have to believe there is such a reading, but you should hope for one and you should want it. But I understand the difficulty because there are other reasons to want not to. The intimacy and the power of the experience of doing glossolalia. But if that power is and, and that intimacy and that profundity of that experience is just because something psychological is going on that's probably not worth the cost of making the faith look idiotic to the world. So hopefully you've found the reading I've offered of 1 Corinthians 14 at least something to be thinking and praying about. And I guess I'll get off my soapbox there. But one person does ask in the chat, last question please, why do you think some of them were not hearing it in their own language, but rather thought they were drunkenly rambling? Okay, that's a really good question. This author that I told you about, Bob Zurhusen, who published in the Biblical Theology Bulletin this article about 1 Corinthians 14, he had earlier, previously, published an article on Acts 2. And what he argues is that um, Acts 2 is actually not even xenoglossia, not, not in the sense of having a supernatural, miraculous ability to speak a language that you've never learned before. That is what I think is happening in Acts 2, but he makes a pretty good case, one that I'm going to be thinking about and praying about. And what he argues is that what's happening in Acts 2 is that they are in a... I don't remember the word for it. There's a word for a culture in which you have sacred language an ordinary language. Think, for example, in pre-Council uh, of Trent, was that it? Pre, no, pre-Vatican pre II um, Catholicism, when the rites of, of the Mass, that disgusting, horrific, nasty, uh, fake presentation of the sacrifice of Christ. <coughs> Sorry for you Catholics who had to hear me say that. Um, but that is what I think is the case about the Mass. But anyway, prior to La Vatican II, the Mass was delivered in Latin because that was seen as a sacred language. Many Greek Orthodox churches think Greek is a sacred language. 
Whereas English or whatever other language is sort of the, the common tongue. And you wouldn't do, in that kind of setting, you wouldn't do liturgy in um, a common, you know, dirty language. Well, the same was true, arguably, according to Zerhusen in his previous article in this journal. Um, the same was true then. You would not be standing up in front of thousands of Jews speaking the oracles of God in Aramaic and Greek. Those are, those are, those are just earthly languages. Those, that, those, are, those are ordinary, common languages. No, you would do it in Hebrew. You see, what, when the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that was just the language. But by the time you get to first century Ju Judea, Hebrew is more than that. It's a sacred language. It's the one the, 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 the rabbi would get up in front of the synagogue and read from the scroll in Hebrew and then comment in Aramaic or Greek. Hebrew was the sacred language. So what would happen if you got a whole bunch of people getting in front of a big crowd of Jews and throwing to the wind the social norms in which only the sacred language of Hebrew is used to speak these oracles of God and instead they're speaking in Aramaic? That stuff that you use to sell, uh, uh, you know, clothes, rat, ratty, torn clothes to, to people. You know, you, you, if you saw somebody doing that, you might think, gosh, they're drunk. Because if they weren't drunk, they would be doing, they would be speaking these oracles of God in Hebrew. That, and, and so what, what Zerhusen argues is that the miracle that's happening there is that God is, doing what he had promised through Joel, that he would pour out his spirit on people of multiple tongues and, 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 and people would hear the, the, the glory of God proclaimed in ordinary language and not just the socially sacred language, the customarily sacred language. Now, I'm not saying I buy that, but that is how... Um, I think that's probably the best way to account for xenoglossia, uh, sorry, uh, human languages being what make the disciples appear drunk in the eyes of the many Jewish hearers. Um, I think that's very plausible, though. Um, now, I will grant that at least on the face of it, the glossolalia understanding of tongues would be the kind of thing which, if it happened, would make the Jewish people uh, that are that are watching the disciples think, "Oh gosh, they're drunk. They're they're right." The problem is that that's not what the text says. The text says the disciples were speaking in other tongues, and they were speaking in tongues that the hearers gathered from around the world heard as their own language. So there just is no getting around that. Human languages are what are being spoken in Acts 2. The question is, what's the best way to make sense of the fact that by speaking human languages, other than Hebrew, the disciples were perceived to be drunk? And it may very well be that Zerhusen's argument that this is an issue where instead of speaking the sacred language, they were speaking these dirty, foul, ordinary, earthly languages, um, 
And by earthly, I just mean used for earthly things rather than heavenly things. Uh, that may very well be the best way to explain the fact that they were perceived to be drunk. I hope that answers your question. I'd encourage you to look up, you know, go back and watch the stream later and you can find the name of that article I looked up and then you'll be able to find the previous article where he makes this argument about Acts 2. Okay. All right. I've gone now five minutes over two hours and I need to go eat dinner. So I'm going to let you go. Um, please do come back in two weeks time, Monday, October 18th at the usual time, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern for what at least right now is uh, planned to be my interview with Jay Warner Wallace and his recently published book, Person of Interest. I'll see you then. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then, 